Well, good morning once again. This is an exciting Sunday in our summer calendar. It's what we call here at GBC a two-for-one Sunday. We do this a couple times a summer. And um, this particular morning, we're going to hear from uh, two gentlemen who are part of a, a, a discipleship program that the elders have been running for about two years. Um, and so we'll hear from Luke Wilcombe and Colin Pilch. Uh, these guys have, have spent a, a long time in a uh, quite a process of preparing these messages, and we're excited to hear from them. Luke uh, and his wife Cassie, their four children, have been here at GBC for about five years. And uh, as I said, Luke's part of the uh, discipleship program uh, with the elders. In addition, he's served in a variety of areas and has done some speaking at, uh, at Awana and, and teaching in our uh, elder environment as well. And so really excited to, to hear what the Lord has laid on Luke's heart, uh, in particular as it relates to Psalm 73. And uh, so I'm going to ask you just give a warm welcome to Luke Welcome this morning. Luke? Gary, thank you for the, the, the introduction. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> so I'd like to begin with a story. The year was 1990, and I was eight years old. I had a friend, Ryan, who always had the latest toys. I remember one day going over to Ryan's house to play with, to play with him, and he had just gotten Luke Skywalker's X-Wing fighter. I was in love. This was a toy that every kid I knew wanted. And after playing with it at his house, I was hooked. I needed this toy. Countless nights I would dream of having this toy and all the promise of fun and fulfillment it would bring. But little did I know, that what was going on in my heart was on me. This morning we will be studying Psalm 73 and we'll be going to look in the heart of a man named Asaph, a Levite who would be appointed by David as chief worship leader in the tabernacle. A Levite with great responsibility and great influence. But this morning, as we study Psalm 73, we're gonna hear about Asaph's struggle with envy. Before we go any further, church, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and humbled to be <laughs> we are so grateful and humbled to be here gathered here this morning at your hands. Father, we pray that this morning we hear your truths and we grow close to your heart. As we study your servant Asaph, please meet with us and appeal to our hearts your truths. Father, as I share with your church this humble psalm penned by Asaph, I pray for humility and that the words would be yours and not mine. Please soften our hearts and grant us understanding as we consider and cover the subject of envy. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. amen. Have you ever been asked the question, who are the greatest warrior heroes in the Bible? If I was asked that question, I would think of David and Joshua and Gideon. To me, these guys, they stood out as the guys who trusted God. And as a result, they were greatly successful in physical battle. They had forever, and, and because of that, they have forever etched their names as, as great warriors. But rarely ever do I consider the men and women of the Bible who are great spiritual warriors. In today's study of Psalm 73, we're going to hear from God's servant Asaph, who will endure one of the greatest battles taking place in, in the world all around us every day. This battle I'm speaking of is the battle for the heart. In this challenging moment in his life, Asaph performs one of the greatest acts of courage any man can do. That is penning for all to hear and all to read the emotions that are on his heart. 
But we're gonna sidestep for a minute and we're gonna take a look at Asaph's heart and the context that's changing his heart in the world around him and is putting him in grave danger. We know that Asaph's life takes place during the time of David and Solomon, that during this time period, God is working in the hearts of men to bring all kinds of supplies to Jerusalem to build the temple and allow even more great wealth during the reign of Solomon. The point here is that Jerusalem is going through a great time of wealth. And if we step back and we consider the world today, we would learn that there's little room in the lives of people who have, for, for God, excuse me, of people who have great wealth. So now let's, so now let's uh, have some context on who Asaph is and what he's saying in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verses one through three, from, I'm reading from the New King James today. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For my studies, I propose that Asaph knew who he was. He knows his Levitical identity. He knows who God has called him to be. As we will see, Asaph understood extremely well the treacherous implications it would have on a nation to speak openly of his troubles. When he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now let's read on to verses 4 through 14 to better understand this observation of the wicked Asaph is talking about. For there are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. There's, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I am plagued, and I have chastened every morning. In this section, we see Asaph struggling with envy for the lifestyle of the wicked. Who can't relate to that? Their possessions, the freedom, and he even goes on to say to do whatever they want to the point where they don't see consequence of harming others. So why would Asaph even have these thoughts? It's because his perspective of God and life, the life that he's living, the life that God has designed for him has shifted. As we know, how we perceive information and allow ourselves to draw conclusive absolutes will greatly impact our lives and decisions we make, and even more importantly, our hearts. You see, somewhere along the way, Asaph's perspective of how great God is and the importance of his service to God in Israel in the tabernacle shifted. Rather than seeing a great loving God who redeemed Israel from captivity in Egypt and provided a way for Israel to bring sacrifice to atone for their sins, he sees a burden. He sees injustice in the hearts of the wicked and rather than and rather than the wicked being punished for the wrong ways, Asaph sees them being rewarded with what appears like unending prosperity. 
the Asaph, whose character, who saw all the completeness and fullness of loving and serving God, who had a big God, who had a big God view, was shaken. I believe Asaph's heart was pulled off the path at this time because he was leaning on his own understanding of the wicked prospering every day and the wicked having an always full cup. Life is all about me mentality. Who would blame Asaph for having this humanistic view by looking around with his own naked eye at seeing all the prosperity of the wicked and then comparing his life to theirs? Please don't take that comparing yourselves to others is always a wicked practice. In many cases, comparison is, a gr is greatly useful, such as a baseball pitcher watching his peers who can throw a fastball five miles an hour faster looking for ways to improve his technique, or a doctor watching her mentor perform an aortic valve repair and similar. I could go on listing the good that can come from comparison in practices and professions from person to person, but here we're reading about Asaph who's utilizing comparison of himself, a devout Levite with a big heart for God to a wicked fallen people who are breaking God's commandments daily. And, re and reaping prosperity every way they turn. And pray and ask God for his understanding. In Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, God instructs us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. As I studied Psalm 73 and this paradox of the humble, loving God servant Asaph and the quality of his life and even his earthly possessions to the people who's breaking God's commandments and boasting about all the wicked they do, something just didn't seem right. The point I'm hoping to establish here is that God chose Asaph and made him to be different. Given this truth, it makes no logical sense for Asaph to compare himself to the wicked. Even if Asaph did stray away from his Levitical duties and he pursued the path of the wicked, he would certainly be distant from God. But there's no guarantee that he would obtain the possessions of the wicked. But even if he did or he didn't, he would certainly obtain emptiness. For those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, even if we find ourselves experiencing these thoughts of envy, comparing our lives to the wicked, similar as Asaph is experiencing. Be prepared to be frustrated. From a, humanistic from a humanistic perspective, you may even find yourself upside down. But from a God's perspective, he has everything right where he designed it to be. And I believe this is his way to show Christians the worldly view and lifestyle is not for us. As most of us in the room at one time or another have made poor choices in pursuit of sinful desires, inside we are left feeling distant from God and we feel regret. When I look back on times in my life when, when I made poor choices or otherwise was trying to be someone that I'm not, to justify my own actions, all I can remember is feeling emptiness, sorrow, and that I disappointed my creator. Verse 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. 
that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. For all who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, like 1 Peter 2.9 and a multitude of other scriptures, God is explaining to us who we are and who we are called to be. I want to encourage all of you to hold fast to this ultimate truth. Verses 4 through 12 tell us, as Asaph says, his eyes are bulging with envy for the wicked, for their possessions, for their carefree, it's all about me, destructive lifestyle. If we pause for a second and we thoughtfully consider who Asaph is again, how can a leader, a Levite, serving in the temple, who has, his, who has declared his allegiance to God Almighty, who has served God in Israel with all of his might, become subject to envy? It's actually very easy. You see, Asaph is keeping the Levitical rituals instructed by Moses day in and day out so that he can come before God in an acceptable manner. But to Asaph, he has a problem. He's a descendant of Adam and Eve. In other words, he has the sin gene. A more simpler way to say this is Asaph is human. Further, Asaph has an adversary that he cannot see. One one who's working behind the scenes to flat out destroy God-fearing Asaph. And who has the ultimate goal of destroying all of Israel? This adversary, the devil, knows Asaph is growing weak. And the devil knows how to utilize this weakness to the fullest to see Asaph stumble and have a love for worldly possessions, self-pleasures, and the spoils we read about in verses 4 through 12, more so than a love for God. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us, as a, from, from the Apostle Peter, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What a great warning. Up to this point, we have learned that who God has designed Asaph to be. He's designed him to be different. Asaph tells us right up front in 73 verse 2, but as for me, my feet has, had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For the philosophy enthusiast in the room, what Asaph is battling with is he's trying to make some sense of why the wicked are prospering, prospering or better put, why is an all-powerful, loving God allowing all this evil to exist in the lives of the wicked or otherwise known as theodicy? Before, I pre before preparing for today, I didn't know there was such a term or, that, or even a field of study on this. But this topic has been going on for several hundred years. In fact, the topic grew so great that by 1710, the term theodicy was coined by German philosopher Gottfried Leibniz. I'm sure Gottfried Leibniz would have given anything to interview Job near the end of his life. As we look back to Job chapter 1, we recall what happened to Job. Satan approaches God declaring that if God takes away all Job's prosperity, that Job will curse God. God then allows Job to lose everything by the end of chapter 1. But if we read on to chapter 2, we see Job loses health and his whole life is caving in around him to the point where even his own wife will counsel Job to curse God and die. Throughout the book of Job, Job will battle with understanding of why all this has come on him. This is where we see theodicy at its peak. This is where we 
we can expect someone to say, stop. God, you are good. How can you even allow this suffering to happen? But by the last book, chapter 42, God restores Job, and he even gives him more than he had in his beginning. Now, we know that God restores ultimately blameless Job, but what about us? What about the trials? What about the unfair events? Or even the times where we receive cruelty for our good works? How is this fair? From my experience in my own life, I've had, and I've had my fair share of trials, trials that have made me grapple to myself. How is this fair? But God knows me. He knows the areas of my heart that need his attention so that he can use me. I'm so grateful for my past trials and how God has shaped me through them. Not only has God carried me through, but he has blessed me abundantly. Thank you, God, for your trials. As Psalm 73 begins, we hear of his frustration, seeing all the wickedness around him, where the only consequence Asaph is seeing is their abundance increasing. At some point, even probably Asaph, at some point, Asaph probably even has the nerve to ask God, why are you allowing all this to continue? Asaph may even had appealed to God. God, they have performed wickedness, breaking your commandments for too long. Now is the time to bring judgment on them. How different are people today as they view wickedness in the world? Such as the experience in Asaph's life and even ours can lead to two primary outcomes. One, questioning God, where we grow distant to God. And two, trusting God more, where we grow closer to God. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than yours. It's at this point that God shows up in a way that only God knew Asaph needed. God didn't show up in a burning bush, and his room wasn't filled with smoke. God placed knowledge in Asaph's heart. Reading on to verses 15 through 20, Asaph will go on to say, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been intrude to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. At this point, Asaph's thoughts shift from envy to understanding. He shakes off the feeling that he's missing out, and the picture becomes clear of who God has made him to be. He knows the position God has placed him in, and he knows the vast amount of people who will be watching and counting on him to do and say the right things. Note that Asaph states, if I, if, note that Asaph states, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. I wanna pause there for a minute. Asaph stops himself from speaking his heart because he knows the damage it would cause and ripple through the nation of Israel. Church family, the application side of this point is that the words we speak are so important. 
As you can see behind me, there's a picture, a recent picture of my family. I am so humbly blessed to have a beautiful wife and four amazing children. But God has placed me as head over them to love them, to care for them, to protect them, to lead them, to minister to them. And this means also to speak words of love and kindness to them, words that lift them up. But it also means not to speak some words. What I mean by this is that as a husband, I'm called to hold back words that would cause my wife and children to stumble. For example, as parents of four children who are involved in numerous activities, from time to time, a, a conflict will arise where one of our, ch our children will do something and another parent will say some pretty hurtful words about what our child did. For me, generally, my first thought is to lash out in words in only the presence of my wife to ridicule this person. But if I do this, I'm not only at fault for not giving it to God, but I'm also at fault for planting harmful words in my wife's heart or otherwise harming my wife. As husbands, wives, family, and friends, I want to encourage you to see what Asaph is highlighting for us. Our words matter. God has called us to choose our words wisely so that we can express love to everyone around us so that we don't cause them to stumble. Before I move on, I want to share with you the only way that I have found to deal with such situations and alike, and that's forgiveness. So at this point, I have stopped myself from speaking words that can harm my wife, but then I look to her and I say, let's forgive this person. You see, when we don't control our words in a God-loving manner, <laughs> I'm never going to get asked to do this again. Uh, our when we don't control our words in a God-loving manner, in front of our co-workers, our spouses, and all that we're responsible for, there's a cost. And I think you, you can see what I mean. In verse 16, when Asaph says, when I thought how to understand this, it, it was too painful for me. I believe it's at this point that Asaph realizes the ramifications of the wicked. He understands that they will have, they will have no part in eternity and potentially the hardest truth to swallow that they will never know the love that God has for them. As someone like Asaph, who, has a, who, who loves God with all of his heart and who considers his service to God in Israel in the tabernacle and receives joy and contentment from performing his duties, he knows that the wicked have traded earthly gains for acceptance for God. They have traded the joy, the peace, the wholeness, and the knowledge that comes from knowing God. Simultaneously, as God's servant, Asaph understands this, he realizes that his own envy was foolishness in the worst way. And if Asaph said to God, God, I want what the wicked have more than I want you, then God's wrath would have been poured out on Asaph too. But Asaph says no to this temptation, to these envious thoughts. And he, declare, he declares that God is a treasure of his heart. There is nothing more valuable to Asaph than God. You can ask anyone in this room what the most valuable thing to them is and then say, now I'm going to take that away. Surely you would cause that person pain. For Asaph, nothing would be more painful than forfeiting his relationship to God. 
Asaph, being the, the leader in the tabernacle, witnessing the spotless lamb being sacrificed time and time again, seeing all the blood that was being shed to atone for the sins of Israel, for offending a perfect and holy God, receives understanding for the question when I thought how to understand this. Asaph knows that the wrath of God has to be poured out in sin in order to be in right standing. I believe that's at this point that we see the paradox of theodicy that we just covered in its, in its highest. But then now it transitions over to the prosperity of the wicked being more of a tragedy. Not only is it a tragedy that the wicked go on sinning or believe that they don't need God, but to Asaph, he now understands it's tragic that they're rejecting this free gift from God, the gift of forgiveness that they can receive by acknowledging and confessing their sin and offering a blameless sacrifice in the tabernacle. Asaph knows that this perfection and righteousness can never be attained by simple mankind apart from God. It may even be that Asaph's heart is crushed because he knows that God, who is slow to anger, as David, as David will later pen in Psalm 103, verse 8, we're in 73, so we'll get there. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. God is offering the wicked this precious free gift, but they refuse to receive it. If they have no desire for it, in fact, they will continue to even push God further away as they will go on to mock him. It was at this point in my study of Psalm 73 that my heart began to ache along with Asaph for the tragedy of the wicked. Then my heart with even more uneasiness thought about the world in present day 2023. Let me ask you a question. How is our culture any different than the 1000 BC culture in the time of Asaph? Human beings just over 3000 years later have taken self-reliance, self-pleasure, it's all about me, I am my own God mentality to a whole new level. While I don't have any statistics to back this up, without looking around too hard at this love of self, it's all about me epidemic, I would say it's at an all-time high. The more I read and studied Psalm 73, no matter which verse I read, it became continually more clear to me that all of humanity has this sin problem that causes separation so far and vast from God that there's no act, offering, service, or any possible work we could do that would gain us reconciliation. So what about us? What about the world we live in today? I'm so glad you asked. During the time of Asaph, <laughs> Israel had the tabernacle and they could offer an animal sacrifice, but a thousand years later, everything would change. This change would be prophesied throughout the Old Testament and in great deal in the book of Isaiah. And, and I love the way Hebrews chapter 9 parallels Jesus to the tabernacle, but in a much greater way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but, as Christ, but Christ came as high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to David, and all the way to the, per the birth of his perfect son, Jesus, God has been continually pouring out his love for us. And if you ever have a moment in your life where you don't feel valued or you don't feel love, then I would prescribe you to read Romans 5, 8. Verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
You see, when you realize you're loved so much that Jesus would offer his life as a once and for all sin offering for you, everything changes. Your thoughts of feeling unloved fade away. You start to feel true, unconditional love, a never-ending love that God has for you. You do matter. After taking all this into consideration, it's easy to answer the question, is God good to me? When I think of Asaph and how he feels about his own nation, Israel, only one word comes to mind. Love. Asaph was in a spot where he could have easily sought King David's approval to persecute the lawlessness of the wicked. But instead, Asaph's heart was broken for God's people. And God is still working in our hearts today to have an agape love for our neighbors, our friends, and all around us. A love that forgives offense, a love so unnatural that to man, there is no biological or even psychological reason that man can justify where this love comes from. If you want to learn more about this kind of unnatural love, then I would prescribe to you to study 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But jumping back into Psalm 73, let's read verses 21 to 24. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. God's love and understanding is revealed to Asaph in the tabernacle. This knowledge penetrates Asaph's heart so deeply that his first thoughts of envying the wicked's possessions and all that they have are blown completely away. Next, Asaph's understanding is then calibrated by God. He knows that his feeling inside was pure foolishness to the point where Asaph mutters, I was like a beast before you. And Asaph confesses that God never let him go. While Asaph was battling with his foolish envy, God was holding on to him the whole time. In this moment, God fills Asaph with understanding so great that Asaph's heart is contrite. It's broken completely as he humbly confesses his sin of envy. And while Asaph doesn't state it here, I would go on to say that Asaph experiences gratefulness. In Psalm 73, 25 through 28, Asaph will go on to, to, to declare, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth I des desire but you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. In verses 25 and 26, Asaph draws near to God and makes a declaration that God is the love of his heart. And he focuses upon the truth that he is fully dependent on God when he states, my heart and my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As Asaph's love for God is renewed, he is also flooded by the knowledge that he, that he experiences, that when he experiences such time of envy, temptation, or even weakness, it's not himself, but it's God's strength that is his portion. Asaph will close out the chapter in verses 27 and 28 by declaring that those without God will perish for harlotry. 
And that is good for Asaph to draw near to God. And I would even go on to say it's crucial to draw near to God. Finally, Asaph will proclaim, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare your works. Church family, in this life, it's a certainty at one time or another. We're going to struggle with these thoughts of envy or anger or unforgiveness or what about lust and so many other thoughts that cause us to feel separation from the love of God. Not only do these thoughts cause us to feel separation from God, but they also distract us from God's truth. For Asaph in Psalm 73, he found himself distracted by envying the wicked, which caused his heart to turn away from God and towards the possessions and desires for the spoils of the wicked. The moment he let those thoughts creep in, he experiences inner turmoil where his love for the wicked's possessions grew so much that there was little room in his heart to love God. Matthew 6, 24, as Jesus is speaking on laying up treasures in heaven, he lovingly warns his followers of this hollow tree Asaph is speaking of when he says, no one can serve two masters. He will hate one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. But please remember, in such moments when we're tempted or where we feel weak, I want to encourage you to run to God's word and read verses like Romans 5, 8 and similar. In reading such, our hearts and our minds are overtaken by the truth that God loves us so much. That he would send his son. Jesus, the bear of our sin, by dying on a cross once and for all. Like, it, like Asaph, we all have sin in our lives. And in times will come where we're struggling with our thoughts of envy or greed or unforgiveness or whatever it is. But those things steal our love from God. So when you experience these thoughts, don't be deceived. Don't let them trick you, but instead seek God's love and wisdom. Thank you.